Tonight we've got a big special treat. Ken Du is from really Auckland, New Zealand, Brisbane, Australia, Dallas, Texas, and it's somewhere else. I don't know where else. But anyway, he's planted churches. He's been um, a campus pastor at multiple universities and planted numerous churches. And uh, he's our friend for about 14 years, somewhere around there. Long time. And uh, he's going to share with us tonight. And if you did not get a handout, there are handouts available. I'm hoping that someone still has some. Because we did hand out uh, do handouts as you walked in. It'll just help you follow along. Tonight, we're going to be talking about having a biblical worldview. So, Ken, come on, right, come, come on up and uh, give him a warm welcome, if you would. And you can define what a biblical worldview Thank is you. as we do this. All right, Pastor Bernie. Don't you guys love Pastor Bernie? It's great. Delighted to be here with you today. Greetings from Dallas, Texas. And I got to tell you, we got you beat in the weather category down there in Texas. So hopefully spring will be coming here. Let me take a moment to introduce my lovely wife of 28 years. She's a graduate from Michigan State University. Any Spartans in the house? Renee, would you stand up, honey? This beautiful blonde right here, that's my bride. Give her a great hand if you would. And then my favorite aunt, Aunt Gina is with us. Aunt Gina, give us a wave. Give her a hand clap if you would. <laughs> Delighted to be here with you, and I just enjoyed the praise of worship. I almost, Pastor Bernie, I almost didn't want to come up because I thought we could just worship here tonight. Just a beautiful spirit, and the spirit of God and spirit of praises here tonight. But I want to talk to you about worldview. Uh, back in 2014, we had been on the mission field for 14 years. We lived in Auckland, New Zealand, planted several churches there in the nation of New Zealand. Then moved to Brisbane, Australia, and planted several churches there. And that's when Res Life was supporting us uh, as missionaries, and we've known Pastor uh, Bernie and Pastor Merle and Pastor Dwayne for 14 years, and we're just so blessed uh, for what you guys have sown into the mission field. But then God called us to come back to America to move to Dallas and help with North America. And as we came back to America, we noticed some changes over 14 years being away. And coming from the outside to the end, we realized there had been, how can I say it, a moral decline in the atmosphere. That even though America still has Christian services on direct TV, big mega churches dotting the land. Somehow we're losing the culture. With all these great churches and all the Bible preaching and all, everything on podcasts and all the Christian bookstores, as wonderful as they are, somehow we're losing the generation coming from behind us to a secular, anti-God worldview. And as I came back and realized and saw just the moral decline, I realized we have to do something about it. And I remember the time when Jesus was talking to the religious folk of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees, and he said, they said, Jesus, testing him, what is, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribes of the Pharisees said, you have rightly answered, Rabbi. 
Now, most of us in here, we love God with all of our heart. In fact, I looked around, people were raising their hand, they were engaging and worshiping God. There was a passion, there was an ethos happening from your heart. Most Christians would say, I love God with all my heart, with all my might. I put money in the offering, I tithe, I'm a giver, I contribute, I'm here at the prayer meetings. That's wonderful. But God has also told us we gotta love God with all of our mind, all of our intellect, amen. You missed a good chance to say amen. He wants us to love him with, our, with the way we think. And so, when you, have you ever talked to a Christian and, and they, you start talking to them and they believe exactly the opposite of what the Bible says? Have you ever talked to people like that? I, I, I traveled a good bit. I talked to people on planes and stuff, and I remember talking to people, and they, they believed in abortion was okay on demand. They believed in, in civil unions and homosexual marriages. They believed in all kind of stuff, and I thought, you told me you were a Christian. They go, oh, yeah, I'm saved, and, and I, I do my Christian stuff on Sunday, and then I have my secular life the rest of the day. And they have what we call a dualistic worldview. On Sunday, and when there's a crisis, they have a God they can pray to and look to, but then they live their life the way they want to the rest of the week. And so when we talk about worldview, worldview is not something we do on Sunday. Worldview should be all-encompassing. And that, thank you. It should be all-encompassing, and it should, it should affect us not just on Sunday, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, backsliding Thursday, you know, uh, you know, party and Friday, all those issues really should come under the jurisprudence of the kingdom of God. So I've given you a little handout here, and if you'd look at it, we're going to be talking just about, about worldview. What exactly is it? How does it affect us? And how can we address the culture? Because we have to do that. One more fact, this isn't a good fact, but 75 to 80% of Christian young people, when they go off to university, they lose their faith. Why? Because they get intimidated out of it by their professors and by the culture on the campus that's saying that that's religious, that's not real true, that's not scientific, that's not rational, and many Many people who are raised in church are losing their faith because they don't understand this thing we're going to be talking about tonight regarding Christian worldview. All right. So you can put that first slide up there. Okay, you got it up there. All right. What is a Christian worldview? A Christian worldview is this. It is a framework to gird and shape our perception of reality. That's number one. Write that in. You've got it in your handout. It's a framework to gird and shape our perception of reality. B, a worldview is the sum total of our ideas and the belief about the major questions of life. And we'll be talking about that in just a moment. It answers all the major questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? How should I live and what happens to me when I die? Those are the major philosophical questions we all have to answer as Christians. But not just as Christians, we have to have the answers for those in the culture, at our workplace, or our school, or where we, where we live and work. We've got to be able to answer those things. And number two, why do we need to understand worldview? Is to avoid the pitfalls of the, in, of the inadequate and destructive worldviews around us. Because the Christian worldview is definitely under attack. It's under assault. 
Okay, so let's look at what a worldview is. James Thayer says this. He wrote the book, The Universe Next Door. He said this, a worldview is a set of presuppositions which may be true, partially true, or entirely false, which we hold, consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently, about the basic makeup of our world. In other words, a worldview is like a, a set of rose-colored glasses that you put on. It will shade or tint the way you see life. Now, you may not be aware of it, but we all have filters, amen. We all have ways that we look at life. A worldview is the filter that you use when things come through. When we were, we were pastoring in Auckland, New Zealand, Pastor Merle, we were there, and the first year I was pastoring, there was a little uh, mother that came up for prayer, and she said, would you pray for me? And she had three little toddlers with her. And I began to pray for her, and there was a guy standing over there, and she said, would you pray for me and my partner? I said, what do you mean, this guy over here, is he your, he's your husband? She goes, oh, no, no, we're not married. And she said, I felt so convicted this whole sermon, because you were talking about sexual purity and holiness. And I looked at her with all the passion and all the pastoral empathy I could say. I said, you know why you feel guilty? It's because you are. You are guilty. And she looked over, she had tears coming down her, 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 her eyes, and I called the guy over, and I said, do you love this woman? He goes, yeah. I said, are these your children? He goes, yeah. I said, why don't you marry her? That's really what she wants. He said, well, it's only a piece of paper. I said, good, just get it then, if it's only a piece of paper. Yet the worldview was, look, I can still be a Christian and not live according to God's moral law. And I sat to him, and I, I sat him down, and I talked to him. They said, all the Christians we know live together. They cohabitate. What's wrong with that picture? Is it biblical? No. But their filter is that of a secular worldview. They're filtering their life through and they're living by feelings and not by the word of God. And we have got to, ladies and gentlemen, we have got to develop not just a Christian passion on Sunday and Wednesday night. We have got to have a grid that's rooted and, and founded in this scripture. Amen. That we've got to say everything that goes on in this life from Sunday to Saturday and every point in between has got to be filtered through what God's word says and how he says we should live. Next slide, please. An example of a thoughtful worldview, however, is more than just a private or personal viewpoint. It is a comprehensive life system that seeks to answer all the basic questions of life. Have you ever talked to someone and you tell them about how God changed your life and they say, oh, I'm so happy for you. That's good for you, but for me, I don't believe in God or I'm an atheist or I'm not sure there is a God. What have they just said to you? That, hey, we can have two truths and they can both be true and be mutually exclusive. That's the culture we live in where you can, you can believe in Jesus and this person can believe in Buddha, this person can believe in, in evolution, and you can all be right and no one's going to step on your little sacred cows because we all want to be tolerant in this political correct culture. But a real worldview is all-encompassing. It has to do with what you do on Sunday, how you behave on Monday, what you talk about. My wife and I flying here, we went through Denver. It's a roundabout way to get to Grand Rapids. But we went through Denver, and we were in a restaurant, and we were talking to a lady. What, what did we do? We started preaching to her about Jesus. 
We just say, well, look, this last Sunday, and I, I'm not preaching today. No, no, no. We do this all the time. I go on campuses. You know, let me give you a little tip. You want to witness to people? Just when you're out at a restaurant or in the movie, when you're paying money, people have to listen to you. And so I always say, and I told this young lady, I said, would you tell me what the meaning of life is? She goes, oh, it's love. And then she walked off, and I said, think about why that's the right answer. And she came back, and Renee and I ministered to her for about 30 minutes. She said, I'd love to sit down and talk to you. Can I have your number? And all of a sudden, we started telling her, not, hey, your view and the way you're living is okay. We said, there is a right way. And we started using our worldview to push back and put, put wedges in her false humanistic worldview. Okay? So it's all encompassing. A Christian worldview is not just one's personal faith expression, not just a theory. Have you ever talked to people and they say, well, Christianity is private. My faith is a personal thing. Anybody? Yeah. In fact, it's so personal they haven't even discussed it with themselves. And you think, what do you mean? It's per yeah, it's personal, but it's also something for the whole world to know. Jesus said, go and preach this gospel to the whole world. That means presupposing the whole world needs to hear it. It's not just my opinion, and the Buddhist can have his opinion, and the, the, the Hindu can have his opinion, and the humanist can. No, no, if this is true, if this is objective reality, ladies and gentlemen, we are obligated to think about it, to live it, and to proclaim it as the truth. Let me ask you a question. What is more loving for a doctor to do to a patient who comes to him? He's a dermatologist. Any, any doctors in the house? Okay, good. What's more loving for a medical doctor to do? When a person comes and there is a growth on his back and it's a melanoma and he says, Doc, I'm heading to Florida and I really have bought my tickets and I'm going and I want to have a great time there and uh, I really don't want to be disappointed so I want to be in and out of this checkup and the doctor looks at it and says, look, he's thinking to himself, that's cancer. But I don't want to ruin this guy's vacation. I don't want to upset his plan so I'm not going to tell him about it. Or... Would love be, I'm going to ruin his vacation. In fact, he can't go on a vacation because he's going to have to go in and get this surgically removed. And even though it frustrates his plans and his lifestyle, the loving thing to do is give him the truth. Which is the more compassionate, the first or the second option? It's not a trick. Yeah, that's right. The second option. Touch your neighbor and say the second one was the right one. So it's an all-consuming way of life, applicable to all our spheres of life. Next slide. The Bible says, it talks about something called apologetics. That's not apologizing for the gospel. That means, it means to give a defense. It's the Greek word apologia, which means to give a defense. And here we see in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who ask you to give an account for the hope that is within you, yet with reverence and gentleness. So we are commissioned to be ready with a response, to have an apologetic defense for the hope that's within us. And part of having that is understanding how worldview works, not just for us as Christians, but also for people who are non-Christians. Next slide, please. Colossians 2 says this, see to it that no one takes you captive. Say captive. See to it that no one takes you captive through empty philosophy, through empty deception, according to the tradition of men, 
according to the elementary principles of the world and not according to Christ. In other words, there is something battling for your thought processes. There are philosophies. There are worldviews. There are ways of thinking that want to take you captive to a certain way. And the problem with deception is you don't know you're deceived. If you did, you wouldn't believe it. But deception is you don't know you're wrong. And there are a lot of people in our world that are deceived because they've adopted some wrong worldviews. Even some people who, who call upon the name of Jesus, I'm sad to say. They don't have a biblical worldview, yet they're trusting in a Christ that shows up on Sunday or when they have a crisis. Okay? So we, we are to give a defense. We're not to be captive through empty philosophies. So what do we have to do? We have to know what those philosophies are. We have to be able to degrade them and to dismantle those philosophies. And that's what I do a lot when I travel on universities. I've spoken in about 30 different nations. And I love going and talking to students and pulling out these false philosophies so they can understand they don't really have a leg to stand on. Next Wednesday night, I'll be talking about evolution, why evolution is a theory in crisis. There are three reasons why most Christian young people are falling away from the faith. Number one, they say there's no evidence for God. They say if evolution is true, it eliminates the need for a God, a deity. And number three, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world if God is loving? Those are the three E's that people throw up on a university or in a, in, at, at a law firm or wherever you may find yourself. We're going to address those next Wednesday. You need to be here. Amen? Why is evolution such a pinnacle thing? Because if evolution, if we are the product of a mindless natural forces that didn't have us in mind, undirected natural forces called evolutional and natural selection, then we don't need a God. That's why Nietzsche wrote almost 250, 300 years ago, God is dead. Why? Because while we're so sophisticated and scientifically advanced, we don't have to be an archaic, lowbrow people. We can, un we can make it ourselves. We can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Man became his own God. That's called secular humanism. And it's endorsed on most universities in our land. And if you get up and say anything contrary to that, you better be ready for a fight. And that's what we do. We equip people for a fight. We equip people for confrontation. Why? Because we have the truth. Okay? So we'll be talking about evolution next week. So we can't let these empty philosophies take us captive. All right? Next slide. C.S. Lewis said this, if all the world were Christian, it might not matter that all the world were uneducated. But to be ignorant now... Not to be able to meet our enemy on their own ground would be to throw down our weapons. In other words, what's he saying is we have the truth, we have the equipping, all we need to do is, is empower ourselves and learn enough to be able to address these issues in the culture that's anti-God, that's against everything you and I stand for, that certainly doesn't want this Bible being read in public schools. In fact, they want to take the Ten Commandments down out of the Supreme Court. Why? Because they realize the real enemy, if this is true, then scientific naturalism and evolution and humanism cannot be true. That's why it's important that we understand the battleground. Okay, now let me just say something here. Some, some of you are saying, well, Pastor Ken, you're, some of this stuff is a little bit over our head. It may be, but it's not beyond your reach. Okay, just imagine you're at the dinner table with a little child, two-year-old granddaughter, like Pastor has, 
And she says, would you pass me the salt or would you pass me the cup? And you know what? It's a little bit beyond her reach, but if she stretches, she can get it. Tonight I'm asking you, it might be a little bit over your head, but it's not beyond your reach. I want you to stretch a little bit. I want you to start loving God with your intellect. And I want you to start saying, okay, what's this guy saying? And, and it's not just, well, I believe what John 3.16 says. Let me tell you what. The people we're talking to don't care about what you believe. We've got to be able to address them on their own territory and be able to do it with wisdom and with the power of God's love and also with, with the word of God, okay? And so let's stretch a little bit, okay? Can you do that? Nudge your neighbor, nudge your neighbor and say, I think he's talking to you. Tell him that. Okay, next slide. What does the worldview do? What does the worldview bring to our understanding? Number one, it answers the questions of origins. Where did I come from? Number two, meaning. Why am I here? What's my purpose? Number three, morality. How should I live? And number four, destiny. Where will I spend eternity? That's what a worldview answers. Okay, and those are the great philosophical questions that every worldview carries with it. If you're a scientific naturalist or an evolutionist, then you came from nothing. You're just lucky mud. You're the product of a mindless uh, process that didn't have you in mind, and you have no purpose. What is, what is morality? It doesn't really matter, because if there's no God, there is no right or wrong. There's no up or down. If there's no north, there's no south. Guess what? There's no up or down. There's no east or west. Everything is relative, and we'll be talking about that Tuesday with our staff. So, so tw- modern man has his feet, like, like um, Francis Schaeffer said, modern man has his feet firmly planted in midair. Because <laughs> if there's no God, there's no objective moral lawgiver. If there's no objective moral lawgiver, there's no objective law. You can do whatever you want. Strongest survive. You see? And then morality. And then finally, destiny. If you came from nothing, guess what? When you die, you go back to nothing. Can I tell you something? Evolution is a bankrupt. Scientific naturalism is bankrupt. You know what? It doesn't remove, it doesn't remove uh, the pain of life. It just removes the hope that one day we as Christians will stand before God and be reunited with him and live forever in eternity. You see, who in their right mind will want to believe that? Yet we have a whole culture that's drifting towards that. Why? Because the church has failed to give us the answers and to equip us. And that's what the Bible says, that God has given us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints. So I'm praying that today, tonight, you're getting some equipping so you can go out and say, look, we have some answers and we don't have to remain quiet and somehow think that we don't have the answers or we can't speak up. No, we can speak up and we should speak up. Why? Because of the worldview is so important. Next slide. All right. Where do, world, where do worldviews come from? It comes from your parents, friends, or peer relationships, Movies, music, and media. The biggest, the biggest preaching mechanism in our nation is television, music, and mass media. If you, know, you want to know where, why our young kids, young people are falling away from Christ, it's because they're spending time on Facebook, they're spending time at the movie theater, they're spending time looking and listening to music that has a worldview agenda. You don't believe me? Yes, it does. You know, my friend here, I met you earlier. What's your name? Stand up for a second, Eric. 
Is it Gary or Eric? Eric. If I, I met Eric earlier today. If I came to Eric, and I'll show you how powerful music is. If I said, Eric, I hate you, I'm going to kill you, and I hate the God you serve. You think, God, Ken, don't. That's bad. But if I sang it to him, Eric, I hate you. I'm going to kill you. I hate the God that you serve. Mow, mow. You say, wait a minute, say it, play it again, man. That's good. See, I said the same thing. You can sit back down. I said the same thing both times, but one was couched with music, and it made it acceptable. Can I tell you, we have a culture. If you listen to the lyrics, if you look at the, the storyline of the movies, if you look at the plot of what's happening, it is an anti-God, anti-theistic worldview that's being propagated. That's where the young people are being preached to. That's where we're being preached to. Music is so powerful, so pervasive. I want you to listen to this. This was about four decades ago. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for the day. Imagine there's no country. It's not hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Anybody want to guess who sang that? Yeah, we all know that. The reason I quote that is because a Christian got up in a Christian coffee shop and said, Jesus told me to play this. Imagine there's no heaven. And she starts singing this anti-God thing. What in the world is going on here? Yet when Christians go to movies that have an anti-God thing, or they're listening to music that's totally secular, they're being inculcated, they're being taken captive by false philosophy. Somebody say amen. It may hurt, but it's true. We've got to understand where it comes from. Let me just tell you. Remember my big fat Greek wedding? Remember, how many saw that? It was a great movie. I loved it. Can I tell you what? They had an item, uh, item featured in that called Windex. Now, Windex, according to the Greek father, would heal everything. It would cure acne to, to arthritis. So he would use Windex. Over, you remember that? It was really funny, quite humorous. Can I tell you what? The next two months, sales of Windex went up 70%. Why? Because product placement influences you. Yeah. Remember back even further, the, when Jaws came back, some of you know what I'm talking about. Jaws came out. Can I tell you what? There was a total total letdown of people going to the beach after that movie. In fact, they lost millions upon millions of dollars, people not wanting to go swim in the ocean because Jaws is out there swimming around waiting to take me. Why? Because movies have influence, you see? And so worldview comes from the movies, and we don't have time to that, develop that, but I want to talk to you about that. Now, <clears throat> when we talk about a secular worldview, a secular worldview says this. It says that the problem is outside. If we have more money, more education, then we can change things. Where Christianity says the problem is internal. In other words, there was creation. Mankind fell. It's called sin in the Garden of Eden. How many remember that in Genesis chapter 1? There was a great falling away. Then all the rest of the Bible is about something called, we call redemption. So the fall, excuse me, creation, the fall, and redemption. So 
Christianity says the problem is not external, the problem is internal. You need a heart transplant. You need to be born again. You gotta be changed from the inside out. Where the world says the problem is on the outside. If we can give people enough money, enough education, if we can help them do this, that or the other, then we can create this thing called a utopia society and everyone will be, everybody will be at peace and we can sing the song that John Lennon sings, there will be peace and harmony on earth. And that's exactly what most educators and most institutions are out to do. They're, it's called social engineering, where if we can just educate and inculcate them, somehow we can bring them under control. I was at the University of Houston one time speaking, and I was talking about people not being basically good. How many know people are not basically good? How many, if you have children, you know people are not basically good. How, how, how many have children? You know, they're beautiful little, they're, they're beautiful, aren't they? You just want to kiss them and hug them. But you know what? In that beautiful little smiley, kissable face, there is a little rebel waiting to get out. I'll never forget the time with my daughter, Rebecca. We were living in Los Angeles, and I put her in the nursery. She was 18 months old. And the nursery worker came out, and he said, we need to get Rebecca, and you need to take her. She's biting all the other children. I said, what? My little Becca? Yes, she's by. You know, and I didn't take her before church and say, come here, honey. Now, you're going to go into the children's nursery, and it's dog-eat-dog dog in there. you got to fight for your right to party. And I want you to just, you know, I didn't tell her any of that. You know, she just did it. And I thought, how did, she, how did this happen? It's in them. You don't have to teach selfishness to children. They know it intuitively. It comes out of them. Why? Because it's our nature. It's our nature. And so, God says the problem is internal, an internal problem. The world says it's external. So real quick, next slide. <coughs> Ideas have consequences. How many know that? Yeah. Plato, back in 462, he argued that collective ownership would, pro would take care of all the conflict in ancient Greece. All we needed to do was collect all the private property and let the state be the jurisprudence and the governance over it, and then we'd give it out to equally to everybody and we'd have peace and harmony because private property was the source of all conflict, okay? This was exactly what he wrote about in the Republic. Next slide. Conflict means military war, continued struggle or battle, especially warfare between opposing forces. Next slide. So we understand there was conflict back then and it was over land and property and possessions and livestock, etc. So private property is something that's owned by the individual, something especially land or buildings owned by a person. All right, next slide. So we get the idea. If we get rid of private property, we'll get rid of all the strife and we'll have peace on earth. All right? Then came a man back in the 1500s called Thomas More. He was, he was uh, a prime minister, and not a prime minister, but he was the chief counsel, commissioner for uh, Henry VIII, he wrote a book called Utopia. Any English majors remember reading Utopia back in high school? Yeah. Utopia was this imaginary place that everything belonged to everybody, and there was no strife, there was no struggle, and it was a great communal people that lived on this island. There was no crime, and, and everyone was so giving and loving, and he called it Utopia, which literally means in, the, in, in Latin, no place. It doesn't exist. All right? So he, he built upon what what Plato had said, and here Thomas More writes this thing called Utopia. Three, three centuries later, next slide, we have a man named Karl Marx. 
And he starts reading Utopia, and he has some really radical political ideas and agenda, and he summed up the single problem with the world was we need to abolish private property. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? So what did he do? He, along with 17 university students, started something called the Bolshevik Revolution, and from there they started by force taking away people's farms and lands, homes and livestock, and if they resisted, they killed them. Over 60 million people were killed because of this wonderful idea called communalism, or what we called it later, communism. It started with Plato, Thomas More, and here Marx is acting out the idea. It's not just an idea anymore, it is actually now being inculcated and applied to the culture. How many know ideas have consequences? Next slide. Finally, Joseph Stalin, who was a bloodthirsty dictator, he killed millions and millions of his own people. They enslaved over 250 million people under communism for the sake of getting rid of conflict. Yet there was nothing but conflict. Why? Because the problem was not external. The problem is internal. You can take away people's property. You can take away guns. You can, let me tell you what. You can do everything, but people will kill you with a pitchfork if, if, if that's all they've got. If all you have is, a, is an old milk cow, they'll steal that if they're hungry. It doesn't matter. Why? Because there's, the problem is internal. It's not external. And our culture has tried to say, look, let's fix the externals. Let's social engineer the outside, and maybe we can transform the inside. It doesn't work. Why? Because nature of man is fallen. We have to be redeemed. Now, some of you, I'm clicking over your worldview. You're thinking, ah, remember ideas? Remember filtering, looking through lenses? You need to put on the lenses of Scripture. Next slide. Francis Schaeffer said, every generation of Christians have the problem of learning to think meaningfully of its own age. If we, were, if we are able to communicate the Christian faith effectively, we must know and understand the thought forms of our generation. We've got to know what they're thinking about. And I'm going to be talking more about that next week when we talk about evolution, when we talk about evil, when we talk about evidence. Is there any evidence for God? You, it's everywhere. It is everywhere. You have got to put your head in the sand to say there is no God. And that's exactly what our culture has done. But I'm going to show you scientifically and philosophically why the Bible is true. And I'm not even going to quote the scripture. I'm going to quote the scientists. And they're going to point to the scripture. Why? Because truth, all truth is God's truth. It's God's truth. And the secularists and the, the, the false philosophies, they steal from God to, to kind of support themselves. Okay, next slide. We've got to hurry, so listen quick. All right, next slide. I'm not going to go with this one. All right, so when we look at worldview, we look at where do we come from, what went wrong with the world, and what can we do to fix it? Now, remember what do the humanists and the secularists and, the, and Plato, what did they say the problem was? The problem was ownership of private property. What was their solution? Let's get rid of private property. Let the state be God, and we will divvy it out to whomever we wish, and that way we'll create our own utopic society, and everyone will be at peace, and we can sing Imagine with John Lennon. Okay? But the Bible has a very different look of worldview, that man is lost. We're not good by our nature. We are selfish. 
And and because of the fall, we inherited the Adamic nature of our parents, and we have it in us. And unless we are redeemed by something supernatural that transcends time and space, that transcends our own carnal failings, we will perish and we will still be looking for answers. And that redemption came in the person of Jesus Christ. And he is culminating everything together to come back a glorious return when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, you were right, Jesus. You were right. And we've got to think right, church. It's not just the atheists or the agnostics or the the humanists or the evolutionists. It's us. It's the people in here. We're thinking, well, it's my private religion and I don't want to step on anybody's toes. Are you kidding me? You're the doctor. The person has got a cancer growing on them. You owe them the truth. I owe them the truth. An atheist said this. He said, how much do you have to hate someone to believe eternal life is, is possible and not tell them about it. This was an atheist. If you really believe there's a such thing as eternal life, that you can be saved from sin and degradation, and by this avenue you can be redeemed and you can have eternal life, how much do you have to really hate somebody not to let them know about that truth? And that's my question to Christians all across North America. If you and I really believe what we say we believe about eternal life, that we've been redeemed, how much do we have to disdain or hate people to say, I'm not going to give you the cure. I'm not going to tell you what changed my life because I'm afraid you might reject me or you might call me a, a Christian bigot or you may say I'm intolerant or you may say I'm whatever. And so I'll just kind of play it safe and come to church. Yet God is saying we as Christians, we must sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. Being ready, always ready to give a hope and a defense for that hope that's within us with gentleness and reverence. Folks, we are obliged. We are obliged to tell people. Not because we want to make people feel bad, but because it's true. And it can change them. I was standing in a queue in New Zealand at a place called Takapuna. <laughs> and I was busy, and, and the line was long. They call it a queue in New Zealand. It's a British term. And I'm standing in the line, and I look over, and there's a mother. She's working with these two little toddlers, and there's another t- smaller child that they're fussy, and, and I'm in line, and I'm trying to get my stamps and mail something back to the States. And, and all of a sudden, she puts the little child on a desk and she tries to minister to the other children that are fussy. And I look over there, and this kid is toddling back and forth. And it's a hard concrete floor in the post office. And I'm looking, and I see this long line. I'm thinking, that, that child is in trouble. That mother doesn't even realize that baby's going to fall over, and it's going to hit its head on the back of this concrete. It's not going to be good. So you know what I did? When I understood the knowledge of the impending danger that that little child was about to undergo, I did what most charismatics would do. I prayed that God would send someone. No, I got out of line and I said, I better do something. Nobody in line saw it except me. The mother was oblivious to it. And I, could, and I put the child back in the mother's hand. I said, this child was about to fall over. She looked at me with an with a embarrassed smile and said, thank you very much. And I thought, you know, what if I hadn't moved? What if I hadn't done something? That poor child would have been hurt very, very badly, possibly killed. See, that's why we need to be apologists. 
That's why we need to have a Christian worldview because we're talking, ladies and gentlemen, about life and death. I've dedicated my life because my life was changed. You're an ambassador for Christ. I plead with you. I beg with you. Reconcile men back to God. That's what Paul said to the church of Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5. I plead, be reconciled back to God. If what I'm saying is true, we've got some work to do, church. And I want to encourage you. Some of the things we've talked about tonight, have, they may have been a little bit over your head, but they're not out of your reach, amen? So I want you to fill out that page. We're gonna just take a minute. I want you to fill out that page if you would. Just take a, a quick second, and then we're gonna close in prayer. And then I'll be up here afterwards, and we can have questions. If you have any questions, I'd love to fill those for you. But just take a moment, if you would, please, and fill that out. And if you don't have the answers, there's an answer key on the back. So we, you can, that's a good cheat sheet for you. So go ahead and do that. Just take a moment. Okay, let me pray for you. <clears throat> Next week, I want to encourage you all. We'll be talking about why evolution doesn't have a leg to stand on scientifically. We'll be here. We're going to have a lot of fun. So invite a friend. Invite a skeptic. Invite someone who's struggling perhaps in this area to come along, and we're going to have a great time dissecting that. Father, I thank you for this night together. Lord, thank you for Res Life, the beautiful church this is, the people here, Lord, the precious souls that came out tonight. Lord, I pray you would empower them and encourage them to go out and be salt and light in this culture. We give you the praise. We give you the glory. And thank you for your truth, God. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.